Okay, just a few things uh, that just came up here. In the uh, somatosensory lecture, uh, we didn't get to slides about Brown-Sicard syndrome and syringomyelia. So instead of like, you know, pushing everything else back, I put them, made a Panopto video, asynchronous online tutorial for you guys, and you can get the information from there, right? So, so watch that. It's nine minutes. I'm sorry, but you know, it's just uh, it's better than you know putting it, putting all the other stuff off. Okay, uh, another another thing that came up. Uh, on the slide here for somatosensory cortex, I put S1 there. This is not sacral one, right? This is uh, somatosensory, primary somatosensory cortex. So one, in the, there's nomenclature based on the functional uh, specialization of certain cortex, cortical structures. There's V1 for visual cortex, primary visual cortex, V2 for secondary visual cortex, a1 for auditory, primary, auditory, A2 for secondary auditory cortex, M1 for motor, M2 for motor, right? Okay, so just, just no confusion there. Pain, that keeps you in business, right? It's, 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 it's what actually, number one reason why people visit uh, the physician. Uh, you know, it's, it's a very important kind of uh, perception there. And it also has a really outsized kind of uh, medical impact. People with chronic pain uh, are suffering tremendously. There's not so much that can be done for some of these pain diseases. There's a, um, there's a big healthcare expense on this. So it's, it's, it's a big thing. Um, and uh, there's also now the addiction to opioid prescription drugs, the opioid crisis that you heard about, we'll just talk about it a bit more because uh, it will affect you too once you get your prescription pad. Right, so pain is not just, you know, a somatic sensation and a perception just like touch, even though most of what we will be discussing in this lecture uh, goes through the uh, somatic sensation and perception parts of pain, but uh, it is also, uh, a really more multi-dimensional phenomenon, right? So there are people, it's a disease in itself, it's not just a symptom that accompanies diseases, but neuropathic pain is a disease in itself where you have chronic pain perception without an acute injury, uh, and uh, that, that's, that's a really bad thing. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm having a little human interest uh, video here for you, which, uh, you know, but brings out the, this kind of uh, uh, burden that people have with chronic pain pretty well. I am generally a very positive and happy person, but some days I can't tolerate this. Mm. Okay. The first time I heard trigeminal neuralgia, I kind of did what everyone else did, and I kind of went, what? What's that? Trigeminal runs from the base of the skull all the way through the face. And basically what happens is the nerve misfires and causes extreme pain. It feels like somebody is taking a screwdriver, sticking it in my face, and then taking car battery chargers and connecting them and trying to turn my face on. 
sometimes don't know exactly when it's gonna happen, but sometimes we have certain triggers. For me, it's chewing or pushing my hair out of my face. Oh, hold. And then some of us also have this searing burning pain that's there 24 seven and never goes away. And I'm uh, lucky enough to have both. <laughs> I think everybody experiences pain differently. So being able to teach a class and I realize that there are people that are counting on me to help them achieve their goals. It helps me with the pain. Like it helps me to live. Fitness, while I, I love it and never want to give it up, I have a fear that, um, I have a fear that I'm not going to be able to teach forever because when it gets really painful, I sometimes I can't do it. And I just don't want to give up what I love to do. I've been struggling with the disease. Coming back. Okay, so, uh, yeah. Now, it's it's really interesting. I mean, she has a very positive attitude over uh, for it, you know, which actually helps. Uh, so, there. So this neuropathic pain, you know, it can be really painful uh, there. Um, and people are really suffering from it. But they are also, you know, not just physiological, uh, physiological um, effects of pain, but there's also emotional aspects, you know, affect. So uh, pain is really related to emotional centers in the brain. Uh, it, it stimulates crying, fear, uh, and actually somebody's emotional state can change pain perception, right? I mean, this, is, this really is true. The, the, the pain you perceive, uh, you know, from your nociceptors up to your cerebral cortex, uh, based on your emotional state, this signal can, can be changed, right? Uh, and and it's, it can be very powerful. It probably is like, uh, that's why she does this kind of, you know, has a positive attitude. Uh, you know, all of this probably brings her overall pain, pain down quite significantly. Then there are also secondary effects that you have to deal with with people with, who experience a lot of pain. Uh, depression, suicide, you know, these are kind of uh, secondary uh, uh, issues there. And then you also, what's also important when it comes to pain is the kind of context in which pain, uh, in which pain appears, right? So um, it can be perceived very, your perception of pain can be very different based on the psychosocial context you're in, right? So I want to show this here. Uh, you know, this this cheerleading girl, another human interest story, but it also shows how how she goes through pain and uh, she doesn't feel in control of it, right? It's a distressing social situation. Maybe she could, she wouldn't, she wouldn't be so distressed by the pain if if she was in the last act of a of a dance show or something and she hurt herself, but she made it to the final and she goes through it, right? That's, that kind of attitude will kind of reduce her um, subjective experience of the pain. But if you look at it here. It's disturbing video of a high school cheerleader in absolute agony as she's forced into a painful split. 13-year-old Allie Wakefield screams, please stop nine times in the 24-second video. 
Her arms and legs are held down by teammates. Well, you get the idea. We don't have to watch the whole thing. It's painful. So, so what this, what this shows actually quite well is Okay, so we're down here. So that actually the attention you pay to and, and kind of the sense of agency you feel over your pain can really affect pain perception. Even though the firing of your nociceptors may stay the same, uh, depending whether you feel like you're in control of the pain or not can really have, have an influence on this. So for example, if you're treating patients for chronic pain, telling them actually that they're part of an active pain management program or undergoing one uh, has a subjective feeling of reducing their, their overall pain levels, right? So this is, this is kind of important there too. So what you have here, the nociceptors, you know, as every sensory system, pain also has uh, receptors. These are free nerve endings. So they are different from the somatosensory receptors, which has these, have these elaborate structures uh, on their endings. Uh, these free nerve endings, uh, you know, are free nerve endings. They are, uh, are connected to unmyelinated C fibers or lightly myelinated A delta fibers. These are here, right? So the somatosensory fibers, the A alpha and A beta fibers here, they were myelinated, they were thick, they have fast uh, uh, velocity transduction speed, right? And the pain fibers usually are unmyelinated C fibers and they have low transduction speed, right? Um, this has certain effects as well. Um, then you have within nociceptors, you have different ones. You have some that uh, respond to like strong me mechanical force. Uh, you have some that respond to uh, uh, heat over 43 degrees Celsius. Below that, it's more like a temperature kind of sensation, but the pain perception sets in after like 43 degrees. That's when skin scalding hot, right? Um, then you have chemical nociceptors uh, that respond to, you know, internally histamines uh, or capsaicin, you know, the chili pepper uh, type of active ingredient. And, but most of these, um, you know, not so much is known about these nociceptors. Our lim knowledge is still limited, uh, but it's thought that most of them are po polymodal. So, so you, they respond to thermal and chemical and maybe mechanical action too, right? So what happens is uh, nociceptors, by the definition, respond to noxious stimuli, right? That means uh, these are general stimuli that have the potential to cause harm and tissue damage, right? So, um, strong pressure, sharp objects, right? But also burning heat, pH extremes, environmental irritants, all of that can cause this, right? This is external, but then you also have internally uh, um, 
factors that activate or sensitize nociceptors, like histamine from mast cells, potassium from damaged cells, uh, pratykinin from blood, and so on. So um, that's also um, important here. Now, let's go through a few examples, right? Uh, what, how, what, what pain activation can be on the physiological level, right? You step on a sharp stone, this stretches and bends nociceptors in the skin, activates mechanically gated ion channels, and then the cell depolarizes and sends action potential uh, through the uh, anterior, uh, uh, through the spinal cord up to somatosensory cortex, and you feel pain, right? If you touch a hot iron, it's heat-sensitive ion channels that open above 43 degrees Celsius, send an action potential, send it up to the brain. Running a marathon, right? That can be painful because uh, your tissue oxygen levels don't meet the demand, right, by the muscle tissue. Uh, so you have a release of lactic acid, and that activates ion channel in the nociceptors, and you feel that burning pain, right? Uh, stung by a bee is also a painful sensation because of the venom that's injected into the tissue. Uh, there's a mast cell response, uh, uh, that it re histamine release, and uh, the histamines themselves cause the uh, nociceptor depolarization, right? And again, an action potential is sent and it's interpreted as pain. So here's the uh, pathway again. Uh, we've discussed this, but it's just to kind of reiterate it. Uh, there's the primary sensory neuron from the receptor into the substantia gelatinosa, which is a gray matter structure at the input segment, uh, enters also through the dorsal root here. Then it actually decussates, crosses the midline at the level of the, um, the input segment, uh, goes up the uh, spinothalamic tract, and then reaches the thalamus. From the thalamus, via the internal capsule, goes into somatosensory cortex, S1, right? Primary somatosensory cortex. Cool. Now, again, very much like the um, somatosensory system, there's also a trigeminal pathway for pain. So from the face, transmitted through the trigeminal nerve, right? So the pain receptors, nociceptors in your face enter uh, through the trigeminal nerve at the level of the pons. But while touch fibers kind of uh, stay at the level of the pons, the uh, uh, pain fibers uh, descend through the spinal trigeminal tract into the medulla, uh, into, into this uh, spinal trigeminal nucleus here, where they make the first synapse. The first synapse is, again, ipsilateral, right? Uh, then it decussates and went up into the thalamus, the second synapse, and then again into a primary sensory cortex via the internal capsule. So this is another pathway uh, you should know about, but by now you, you kind of get the general logic of these pathways and when and where there's a lesion, what can happen. So go ahead.
Sorry, the clickers are not working. Okay. But do discuss it. Okay. Okay. So the spinal trigeminal nucleus is where it, uh, the synapse occurs in the medulla. Uh, the other options, the uh, let's see, the spinothalamic tract is for pain from the body. So that's not the case here because it's the face. Remember, is it? face or body, so two different systems. Um, and uh, the, left, uh, the principal sensory trigeminal nucleus is uh, the nucleus for touch, right? So not for pain. Uh, and then it's also on the right side because it's ipsilateral, right, right, right? Okay. So now there's another interesting phenomenon, uh, what's called first and second pain. Um, so the first pain is this immediate sharp pain that you feel uh, when you hit yourself. Like, let's say you uh, hit your knee on the coffee table, right? There's this, like, really first pain that is immediate, that is sharp, and then, but then later you have a little more duller pain that you feel, right? Um, so this first pain is mediated by faster A-delta fibers. So these are these fibers that are myelinated, right? Uh, there's a second uh, pain uh, where that's mediated through slower C fibers. These are here. So what this means is like, uh, you know, you might have nociceptor stimulation of both of these nociceptor, type of nociceptors uh, at the same time. They actually, these guys here from the, uh, the, the A-delta fibers mediated uh, reach the brain first. So that's your first perception. These take a little bit longer. That's your later perception. And they're also more sustained firing. So now think about this. These are fast touch fibers. Then you have a faster pain fiber and a slower pain fiber. With this in mind, Okay, I think the clickers are not working because the computer shut down earlier and it didn't restart the clicker program. But uh, do discuss this for a second and I'll bring this up again.
Okay. So you can respond now. Is there something to plug? Oh, there's no receiver on the this thing. That sounds promising. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, what do we got? So, first you have the perception of touch, right? These are the fastest fibers. Then the next one is the throbbing pain. Uh, sorry, the sharp pain uh, that's mediated, uh, you know, the, that's the first pain that's mediated by the A-delta fibers. And then you have the throbbing, longer-lasting pain uh, that is mediated by the uh, unmyelinated C-fibers, right? Oh, well. Okay. Um, so, now... Another really interesting type of pain that is kind of very counterintuitive uh, and, and sometimes can be confusing is what's called referred pain. So that's when, when you perceive pain at a location where it's not originating from, right? So for example, people with a heart attack have pain in the upper chest wall and in the left arm. Uh, you know, with appendicitis, about the abdominal wall and navel, you know, pancreatitis, and so on. So what's happening there, you've got to uh, know this a bit so that you don't get confused when patients present with these type of uh, pain syndromes. Um, and here's a nice uh, little, little drawing that, that can t tell you. So this mostly involves, uh, you know, the most important part of referred pain involves, like, uh, internal organs. And what's thought to be happening here, the mechanism, is that you have, uh, you know, touch information, uh, so, sorry, um, pain information coming in uh, from both the visceral and, and, and the skin parts they, into the dorsal horn. There they get mixed up somehow, and uh, the pain fibers go up into the brain, right? So this idea is, that it actually activates pain fibers uh, that um, that are not, you know, that are not organized in the same way. So it, it is usually from a part of a dermatome or so. The the pain fibers uh, go up, right, and then and then your visceral hijack that and and crosswire with this, and that's why you perceive pain from from that particular uh, dermatome or part of the skin, right. So do, do know the ones for the most important ones, you know, where, where, the, um, where, the, uh, where you actually expect the referred pain, right? So the, the kind of skin areas, cutaneous areas, uh, and, and the organs. Okay. Polling should work.
Okay. Okay. You got it? Any more? Okay. Yeah, so that's the heart, right? There you go. So you can recognize a heart attack. That's good. That's good. Okay, so this is a question from the Panopto slides that you all watched. Okay. Allodynia, hyperalgesia. <laughs> so not everybody watched the video. <laughs> so um, let's just discuss the difference really quick, but do watch that video. Um, so hyperalgesia is an increased sensitivity to a noxious stimulus. So you bump, you know, the coffee table example, you bump your foot, at, uh, your chin at the coffee table, right? Uh, you feel, you know, with a force of like, say, five and a pain perception of six, right? Now, you wait a little bit and then you hit the same spot again with a force of five and a pain perception of about 20, right? So that actually there's a hypersensitization of the area happening there uh, that is after, immediately after an insult. Um, what's important is that it has to be activation of a noxious, uh, uh, sorry, of a nociceptor. So this is all going through the nociceptor system. Uh, so the activation a second time around uh, actually produces more pain, right? An increased sensitization. Allodynia means a, pain, a painful sensation from a stimulus that hasn't been painful before, right? So like uh, that involves stimulation of a touch receptor, 
um, causing a painful stimulation, right? Like in this example here. This is thought to be occurring through, we don't know how it happens, but it, it does happen, and it's supposed to be some cross-wiring again of the, um, of the touch system and the pain system, right? And it, 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 it does happen. Like sunburn is one example as well there. Like a touch on your sunburn, you're actually not activating no receptors, but you're activating uh, touch receptors that send pain signals somehow up the brain. Okay? Watch the video. There you go. This is a slide. So now we talked about all these secondary effects of pain, not just uh, as a somatosensory percept, but also as a, an emotional kind of motivational issue. Uh, and there are different pathways for this. One is here the, um, you know, the sensory discriminatory pathway there. The other one is the affective motivational pathway. Very important here is the reticular formation, right? The anterior cingulate cortex and the amygdala, you know, that uh, deal with different uh, states of arousal, cognitive states. Uh, here, the periaqueductal gray, we discuss in a little more detail. Uh, amygdala, emotions and fear, and uh, the anterior cingulate gyrus, uh, which is more like the cognitive appraisal of, of, of painful stimuli. So all of these are, uh, brain systems that deal with the secondary effects of pain, not just the transmission in, in this purely feed-forward way, but there's also, um, you know, like the secondary uh, pathway uh, mediating all the emotional aspects uh, that, that, that go with pain. And what they also do is they send feedback down that can actually uh, also mediate the pain uh, the, the somatosensory pain pathway um, and, and reduce that, all right? So there are also certain neurotransmitter systems involved in this. So in the positive context of this, uh, you have the opioid system, cannabinoids, dopamine, vasopressin, and then you have those uh, that, that the antagonists there as well. Just be aware of that. So again, pain perception is variable. There's an internal regulation of pain. What are those pathways, right? Uh, one thing is called, that's very popular and, um, and it has a lot of empirical support is the gate control theory of pain. That's something you have to be familiar with. This is a high uh, uh, yield thing, question thing. So what you have, so the gate control circuitry here. What this means is that, that you actually have a modulation of those higher order centers uh, of the actual pain response, right? So what you usually, you have your touch fibers entering the dorsal horn going up, creating a touch sensation. You have your pain fibers entering the dorsal horn and they form a synapse there in the substantia gelatinosa right in, in, the, in, the, in, in the spinal segment there in the gray matter, right? And then they go up. And, and then if they get up there to the, um, to the primary sensory cortex, they cause a pain sensation. Now, but here, you actually have a connection between those, you know? Uh, and that's an inhibitory interneuron. So what this in inhibitory interneuron can do is inhibit the actual pain pathway right there, right? That causes the so-called gate. So what this is, 
there's an um, there's a, a uh, basically a pathway to shut down the or or at least shut down or reduce the effectiveness of the firing in in, in the main path pathway. So, for example, one example is if you hit your chin, right? What, what is the first thing you do after screaming, right? You rub it somehow. Actually, there, that, that has some physiological value because you're, you're touching, you activate those uh, touch fibers, and, and they actually uh, activate this inhibitory interneuron that releases enkephalin, which is an endogenous opioid, into the synapse. It inhibits the actual pain fiber transmission, and you feel like temporary relief from that. Isn't that cool? So here another view of it. The, uh, this is the dorsal, uh, uh, the, the dorsal root. Pain comes in. Uh, you have the touch fiber that goes immediately up, but there is a, um, you know, another fiber. Some fibers actually uh, synapse with this inhibitory interneuron. That uh, interneuron releases enkephalin. Note that name. That's important. Uh, which is an endogenous opioid, uh, it, and it, um, it reduces the uh, transmission rate of the pain pathway. Which causes you to perceive less pain, as long as you keep that rubbing up. Now, what's interesting is also, now you have what's called descending top-down pathways from these uh, emotional centers, the amygdala, uh, the anterior cingulate, the periaductal gray matter, and so on, that actually also act on this, um, on this uh, inter inhibitory interneuron. So it's, this is kind of the pathway by which, you know, let's say a yogi can reduce his pain, presumably. But it's certainly the pathway where your emotional state, your sense of agency, uh, all of that what we discussed earlier can, uh, is able to reduce uh, pain, uh, the, the transmission in the pain pathway and thereby the uh, perception of pain. Okay, so where these, pain these descending pain fibers come from, uh, these are the areas here. Oops, ah. just, just, just note them. Uh, there, there are some uh, that, that use noradrenaline as a neurotransmitter, uh, the serotonin. Uh, equiductal gray is, a, is, a, is an important one. The reticular formation here, the loc locus coeruleus, and the nucleus raphimagnus, right? Okay. Okay, got it, one, two. From the ascending pain fibers. 
So what that means is these cortical or these, these areas here in the brain, they receive information from the ascending pain fibers, right? So the pain signal starts here. This is true nociceptor stimulation. Uh, there's gate control here through incoming touch signals, reducing it, and then it goes up to the cortex. And then there in the brainstem, there are some, uh, some, uh, um, there's some activity happening that then actually reduces the pain perception here based on uh, emotional state, motivational state, and so on, right? Okay. So, just a question of a personal nature. So I have another question after this, and I want somebody from the A and B crowd to come up and explain their reasoning. Okay? Okay, good distribution. Normally distributed, you see this? <laughs> okay, so these guys here, just, just mentally prepare yourself, maybe I can get a volunteer. Okay. Okay, can I see a show of hands? Like, okay, for, if you could ever choose to live without pain forever, like a genie comes and you have that wish, uh, would you pick yes? A, who would pick yes? One, two, okay. Who would put no? Okay. So could I get somebody from the, from the public speaking friendly crowd public speaking affiliate crowd, and who responded no. Yeah, yeah, come up. Give him a hand. All right, so I'm just supposed to explain my response? Yeah. All right, so I would choose to feel pain uh, because we're all in medical school, and if we didn't have pain, it would be really difficult to do our jobs. Uh, pain is our way of our bodies telling us where the, where the lesion is or where the problem is, and so it's actually very helpful to know if a behavior that we're doing or an environment that we're in is uh, problematic for us, so if we should stop or continue or things like that. Yeah, that would be the physician's recommendation. <laughs> so, because there are people who are born with congenital insensitivity to pain. They don't feel pain. You know, but they don't turn out to be supermen or, or um, superheroes, right? But they actually have really uh, problems. You know, a, a child that doesn't have sensitivity to pain, uh, you know, might scratch it, its eyes all the time. You know, usually, uh, and then get an, get, a, get an abraded cornea, which usually is very painful, but the child doesn't stop, and it can lead to blindness. Or it looks into the boiling uh, pot with pasta and just crabs in there and takes the pasta out, you know, and nothing, nothing, you know. 
So all of that. So people with congenital insensitivity to pain uh, have, have a lot of problems. Uh, you don't detect their diseases you know, until they are at a really advanced stage. And uh, a lot of people, unfortunately, die very early. So pain is important. Pain is your, the physician's friend because it helps you in the diagnosis. It gets the people to your, to your office quickly. You know, and, uh, and, and, and it helps you uh, find, find the culprit and localize it pretty well. Okay. Neuroexamination of pain, you will do this. It's really simple. It's very similar to the tactile uh, examination, except you do it with a, uh, a sharp, don't use a hypodermic needle, you know. Uh, use something that you know, a new sharp instrument for every patient so there's no blood-borne transmission of disease with a dull and a sharp edge, and then you, you test that, and you ask, is this dull or is this sharp, right? Um, and you, you learn this. Uh, it's very similar. So pain management. Uh, there are two ways to do it. One is inhibit, inhi inhibiting uh, the sensitizing agents here at a wound. The other one is inhibiting the pain pathway, right? So pain management can, do with can be done with different things like stimulation, like spinal cord stimulation in, in long-term pain, chronic pain. Uh, it, it, it actually activates the periductal gray uh, region to stimulate this descending brain pathway that we just talked about. So that's something. There's surgery. There's ablation uh, of the pain pathway, chordotomy. Uh, where you kind of uh, disrupt the pain, system, pain pathway. Uh, that's done you know, in very rare cases with terminal cancer patients which, uh, who are suffering from ex extreme pain during their palliative care. And then there are alternative approaches. In general, acupuncture uh, has not been shown to work beyond the placebo effect. It doesn't mean it doesn't work. The placebo effect is real, especially with pain. You know, we talked about the perceived sense of agency. Uh, and uh, so that's, that's often important too. Uh, if you treat your patient's pain, tell them about it. Involve them in it. Uh, they will actually, the pain, this will pain, make the pain management more successful. So drugs, right? And there are drugs. Uh, so they, they, they can be de basically defined into uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, NSAIDs. Uh, uh, you know, that, that's your aspirin, ibuprofen, and so on. They work on specific uh, s systems here, um, and they are, you know, they don't, they don't affect, they don't treat the most severe pain, but they work really well with, with infl you know, inflammatory pain, uh, headaches, uh, and so on, right? Uh, and then there are opioids, right? These are the heavy hitters. They work really well. Codeine, morphine, heroin, um, and they actually activate, they simulate uh, encephalin, your in endogenous opioid, right? That's released here as part of the gate theory, right? So they bind to receptors there, uh, really inhibiting the firing of the pain pathway. Now, when you think about this, you also think about, oh, they're really addictive too, right? Heroin is part of uh, the morphine family. Uh, they're highly addictive, and you also heard about the uh, opioid crisis in the U.S. right now, right? Can I just ask another question? I hope the thing works. 
Okay? Well, can I see hands? Who has received opioids as part of the medical treatment? That includes me. Who has not? Okay. That's uh, actually less than I thought. So, because what it is, especially in the US, what you see here, this is the kind of uh, amount of opioid prescribed on a per capita basis, more or less. And you can see that there, like the US is really leading, leading uh, very much leading there, along with Canada uh, and Germany. Uh, and, and a lot of other countries don't actually prescribe so much per capita basis. And this might have led to the opioid crisis in the US. So as physicians, as future physicians, you know, armed with a, with a, with a prescription pad very soon, you, you have to kind of think yourself through it. What, what, how do I prescribe opioids, right? So let me give you some background here really quick. So in the 1990s, this really took off. Uh, until then, pain was actually, uh, you know, it was a symptom, right, that, 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 that helps you make a clinical decision and so on, and, and, and then you, you kind of put up with it. But in the 1990s, there was a big uh, change in the medical community, kind of a cultural change that said, hey, no, pain, we need to treat pain. Pain is, an, is a disease by itself, so to speak. We need to, tra uh, we need to, um, we need to uh, treat it. So that, that actually involved heavy prescription of opioids. So, for example, which led to this, right? So, for example, here in Japan, um, when you ask, uh, only half of the physician prescribed opioids for acute pain versus 97 in the U.S., right? That's like everybody. So for chronic pain, these numbers are, are, are slightly closer, right? And, and of course... This kind of goes over in the general population, especially for chronic pain, you have addiction happening from, from them. Uh, you, for, for acute pain, you prescribe a lot. There's a lot in circulation. People abuse that, use these opioids, right? And all of this was based on a 1986 paper that everybody cited, especially the uh, industry, the pharmaceutical industry, you know, uh, that, that actually opioids can be prescribed safely without addiction potential over a long-term basis, right? But this turned out to be actually a low-quality evidence paper, uh, and, uh, but it led to this crisis accelerating in the 1990s, and a lot of the uh, medical bodies, like the American Academy of Pain Medicine, even the Joint Commission said, yeah, let's treat pain, right? And of course, if you have it, and there's somebody suffering, why don't you prescribe it? So it is something that you have to kind of work out for yourself. It's something that's currently an active discussion, and I just included some professional interest reading here for you. You know, it won't be on the exam, but it, it, uh, it will help you kind of make up your own mind how you want to approach this problem. Okay, thank you very much.